Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I am Professor Jay Bhattacharya. I'm a professor in the School of Medicine at Stanford. I am absolutely delighted to welcome as a guest uh, the author, Gabrielle Bauer, who has written a, a, a really, really interesting, fantastic book, uh, and I highly recommend you get it. It's called Blind Sight is 2020. Um, welcome, Gabrielle. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. It's great. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I've um, been reading the book and it is, it is, first of all, I have to say it's incredibly well written. Uh, you are obviously a very talented and experienced writer. Um, and I noticed in the, in the bio that you have, have, uh, have written a, a whole bunch of very, very books in the past on a whole diverse set of topics. Um, and I noticed a book uh, that you wrote, you started, uh, like maybe this was the first book you wrote called Tokyo, My Everest. Um, and, and this makes like we we have something in common. Like I wrote my first book was on Japanese health policy. So I I I, I, I like I, I like that you wrote a book about Japan. Can you explain uh, what was your background? How did you how did you? We'll, we'll get to twenty twenty. But first, I want sure. the folks to know who you are. Like how did you get to be interested in in Japan? How did you get to be someone mm -hmm. who would write a book called Blindside is twenty twenty? Uh, I have a fairly, I sometimes say it's a schizophrenic background. I have a degree in science in uh, biochemistry. And then I went to graduate school in Harvard, and I realized that um, I wasn't cut out to be a lab scientist. And then I got another degree in music. And then one thing led to another, all kinds of different jobs, um, including a mu music job with uh, Yamaha Canada. They ended up sending me to Japan. I fell in love with Japan, uh, left Yamaha, and in between marriages, went to live in Japan, learned the language, and had, you know, 10 years of experiences packed into one, which led me to write the book, Tokyo, My Everest, which is a travel memoir. And that's sort of how I got into writing through the back door. And then eventually I found my way to science writing. So I dusted off my old degree and here I am. I've been doing it, um, you know, both, both journalism for the general public and um, medical writing for health professionals for the past 29 years. So, so C.P. Snow will be very happy with you. You're, you're combining your, your this, the scientific mind alongside your love of arts, psychology. That's, that's your career before the pandemic. That's it. And during and after. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, uh, you're, you're, and you've, uh, you know, you're obviously an excellent writer. Anyone who reads the book will see that. Uh, but you're, you start the book with it, this blind side of 2020, with a description of what, what, where you were on the eve of the lockdowns. And it's, it's in Brazil. I was in Brazil. I, I did the same thing with Brazil, but much later in life as with Japan. I learned the language, um, went to live there for a few months, this time with my husband's support. I went there on my own um, and had amazing experiences there too. And then I returned two years later uh, to visit all my friends, and that's when the lockdown hit. Exactly when I was so in my happy place, Florianopolis, a wonderful city there, and it was really interesting because I would say that Brazilians are the world's most social people, and here I was, and I was wondering how is this country, how is this people that just thrives on socializing, how are they going to manage this? And um, and so how did they how did they manage this? Like I mean, I think. Um, uh, in the United States and Canada, you have a picture of what social distancing means. Uh, and I think it's a very privileged picture in, in one sense, like, you know, you, you yeah. can sit in your house, you have an internet, you can, you can, uh, uh, you know, uh, tr try to live in your own bubble. Uh, I mean, I find, I found it horrifying, but like, I think um, the, that, that when I imagined, when I, when I, when I talk with people who live, come from much less privileged backgrounds, for instance, uh, you know, some folks I know who who live in you know in India, um, the 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 picture is completely different. There isn't a nice place to live. There, it's very very crowded in many many places. You know the, the the slums, for instance. My mom actually grew up in a Calcutta slum, uh, and I you know when I was little, I got to go visit there for um, you know for a summer. Full, lived there for a full summer actually with my relatives, um, and uh, it's it's just un almost unimaginable. Uh, to actually think that you could social distance, but what what was it like in Florianopolis in, in Brazil? What was the, what what was the picture of that? I mean, obviously, you, I mean, you, in the book you describe uh, your experience with you know the cafes are empty, the but like what's what's what was the life? What was life like for for your friends? 
Um, well, you know, there was a division. As you say, in Brazil, there's, you know, rampant extreme poverty of the type that we rarely see here. You're probably aware of the favelas. And, um, but I found that my friends sort of divided, much like a lot of the world. Some of them just got really scared and, and said, no, I can't meet you. And then I had another friend who said, well, why don't you just hole up at my place for a month and then you can go back to Canada. And, and it was awfully tempting, I have to say, but, you know, I didn't want to leave my husband stranded for a month while I was in Brazil. So, and Trudeau, of course, was telling all Canadians, oh, you got to come back, you got to come back. And I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to get a flight back. So I, you know, had to come back early from that uh, trip. Um, but I would say that, that there was a similar division as we saw in um much of the rest of the world. But there was maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, latitude in Brazil. They're, they have a term, a Portuguese term called jeitinho, like the, the Brazilian way, the way of getting around the rules. And we saw some of that. I really like that. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> and Okay. So, um, I mean, still, you must have been shocked to I, I mean i think everybody was to see the disruption in normal social life something that we i guess we take for granted at least i took for granted before the pandemic and yet like you know i tell people and this is this is true literally from day one from hour one when i heard about the lockdowns um i immediately um felt uncomfortable with it and, and you know profoundly um, upset. And then I basically spent the next three years figuring out why and finding other people who felt the same and studying it and writing about it. But yeah, I think one of the things that I remember thinking literally when I heard about the lockdowns and, and all this rhetoric about follow the scientists, follow the scientists, the scientists are saying this, that, and the other. I thought, where are the economists? Where are the historians? Where are the um, mental health experts? Uh, where are the philosophers? Because a, a pandemic is not just a scientific problem. It's a human problem. It's a problem about how do we shepherd the human family through this crisis? And obviously, the science of viruses and of transmission is only part of that equation. So, you know, whenever I kept hearing about another science table and another group of advisors, I always had the same thought. Where are the experts from other disciplines? That was such a huge gaping hole. I was I was shocked by that as well. I mean, I, I wear two hats, Gabrielle. I think I wear I'm a uh, an MD and but also and you know, I've studied uh, infectious disease and infectious disease policy for basically my career. I've been writing about it in public in peer reviewed journals, but I'm also uh, a PhD economist, um, and I've you know I've written about uh, about economic models of of infectious disease spread. Uh, why why economic? Because it it emphasizes how people react to the the threat, and actually, mm -hmm. that has a big effect on 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 the modeling, right? If you ignore that fact, if you ignore the the human act reaction to the threat of danger, uh, and that that leads you to down very blind 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 alleys in your pandemic modeling. So I was and I was really surprised actually that economists stayed silent. Like normally, you have a policy like a lockdown; it's going to have a tremendous impact. Uh, you know. You, you, you can argue over good or ill, I think mostly ill, but like I think uh, it's going to have an impact on the lives and well-being of a tremendous number of people. Not everybody is going to be able to cope with it the same way, especially people who are poor, people who are uh, who, who don't have this kinds of privileges that uh, people living in the West have. Well, absolutely. And, and absolutely. And, you know, and losing a business, losing a livelihood, you know, those are, are big, tragic events that affect entire families and and you know the way this was all swept under the rug uh you know I, I mean i'm sure you have too but i've thought quite deeply about all these things that whole rhetoric again stay home save lives stay home save lives i could i could see the overton window just shifting in front of my eyes um such that we were losing all perspective and it was like there was this mad scramble to the lifeboats of the titanic and, and who was scrambling? It was the boomers, my generation. I was very ashamed of them. And instead of thinking of, you know, how can we help people who are in danger of losing everything? How can we help young people? How can we maintain calm? There was this crazy fear-driven, boomer-driven, you know, scramble to these lifeboats. 
you know, and, and going back to the theme about economists and, uh, and other disciplines, I'll tell you, I, like, like I said, I wear two hats, right? It, it was very difficult in the beginning of the pandemic to put on my economist hat. I wrote a, an op-ed uh, as in a, in my, with my epidemiology hat saying we didn't know how deadly the disease was very early in the pandemic. It was like March 2020, I wrote this op-ed. And, mm-hmm. I start, and I started getting emails from my colleagues saying, well, why are you so focused on the economic harm of the uh, uh, why, where, you know, lives are at stake? I didn't write about economics there. I just wrote about the epidemiology. I made an epidemiological point, And yet I was getting excoriated because I have a, have a reputation as an economist. And many, many, many economists stayed silent because they thought that they would get excoriated too, that they would get, they would get uh, hammered for uh, elevating uh, money over lives. And that was well, I know. Again, that was one of these thought-stopping cliches that was used to, to stop the discussion. And, and that also drove me crazy. I can imagine as an economist how you must have felt. Um, you know, there was a squeamishness which I think is so misguided that you can't talk about costs and benefits when it comes to lives. Um, you know, the, the, sort of the, fam- the famous uh, saying, was it um, Andy Cuomo who said, if it saves one life, it's all worth it, which is completely nonsensical, like completely nonsensical. If you cause untold damage to save one life, no, it is not worth it. And public health leaders and politicians should have the courage to be able to balance these these different forces and inputs, so that that kind of rhetoric was 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 really childish, ultimately. Yeah, I I agree. In fact, what I gave interview after interview where I, where I pointed out that in fact it wasn't money versus lives that was the trade off. That was a false framing. It was lives versus lives. Yes. We were t- undertaking interventions that were guaranteed to kill people. In fact, they've mm-hmm. killed and starved tens of millions of people. Uh, and we knew that. We knew that going in. The UN was saying that 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 in April of 2020, that these lockdowns, the economic dislocation caused by them, were, were going to cause tremendous uh, harm to the the lives and well beings of poor people everywhere. Exactly. Um, and yet, we just and so it was really a question of lives versus lives, right? Do we save? And actually, it turns out in retrospect, I don't know that we saved very many lives with the lockdowns. Well, we a just, lot of studies came out showing that they that we didn't, right? As, as you know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was, it was these lives here, the lives of, you know, my people versus those lives over there that don't really matter. So yeah, there was a lot of hypocrisy um, over there. Okay. Okay. We're, we're into deep subjects, but I want, I want to go back to your story. So let's, so you, 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 you go, you're in Brazil, um, the lockdown hits, you, you fly back home. What, what happens when you, and you, you live in Toronto, so yes. what happens when you get uh, yeah, so I mean, I spent 24, 48 hours at the Sao Paulo airport trying to get a flight because everyone was trying to leave. And finally, I got on a flight. I get home, and my dear husband greets me with his, his hand outstretched like this, like a stop sign. <laughs> it's like, six feet. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So, um, you know, and then I have to say, and, and I will say this over and over, he's, he's a great guy. Um, and he is subsequently really loosened up but he was he was afraid um yeah i you think know, fear I, makes you do crazy things absolutely yeah, i mean and i'm, I'm 66 years old. yeah i'm 66 years old now i was 63 when this happened he's four years older he is 67 we're both in very good health mercifully but you know we're in that age and um he, he was much more afraid than i was and he knew that i'd been at this big airport in brazil and everything so so I went downstairs to the basement and uh, and quarantined for 14 days in my own basement, which was which was fun. Um, so I had a lot of time to think. You know, I had my computer with me and and you know, I had this growing discomfort with the whole thing. And I found it very odd that nobody in my circle seemed to share this discomfort. Um, I was the only one. You know, I guess I come from a typical, you know, so-called middle-class circle where most people lean left and um, there seemed to be this consensus that this was the right thing to do. And so I hopped online, tried to, you know, get some different opinions, tried to talk to a few people very respectfully and tentatively, you know, here are some of my concerns. And I just got slammed. 
I'd never experienced anything like it in my career, in my life. You know, here I was, 63 years old. Nobody had ever called me a sociopath before. Nobody had called me a mouth-breathing Trump tard. You know, nobody had called me a village idiot. You know, negative IQ, like the whole, you know, neck beard. I mean, every insult. And as I say, I had made up my mind early on that I was not going to get into mudslinging. I was just going to be respectful. Didn't matter. This is how people reacted, which was utterly astonishing to me um, because I'd never been on the outside of an issue in this way um, in my life before. I'd never been to a rally or a protest or anything like that. Um, this was all new to find myself um, on the outside. And it, it took me several weeks to gain my bearings and to, I guess, thicken my skin enough to be able to to pursue this and, and eventually to find um, like-minded people. Um, I stumbled on this Reddit group, which you're familiar with because we invited you to speak twice, um, called Lockdown Skepticism. Like I literally Googled um, against lockdowns or opposed to lockdowns or something like that. And then this group popped up, this Reddit group, Lockdown Skepticism, which at the time only had a couple of thousand members. The group's still going strong and, and it has 55,000 members now. It's a global group. And I became active there. It was just, it was such a relief to find people who shared my concerns. I became active there. Eventually, I became a moderator in that group. I sometimes joke that I'm the world's oldest Reddit moderator because Reddit tends to skew young, but it was great. We were a group of about 20 moderators, got to know each other very well, became friends, invited people like yourself and Vinay Prasad and Matthias Desmet and, and a lot of experts um, to give uh, Q&A sessions. And so that's how I really found my tribe of, of both just ordinary people and experts all over the world. Um, and that was a lifeline. That was a lifeline because at that time, I was in true despair. Like, I'll never forget, there was one day, May 24th, no, May 4th, 2020, 7.30 in the morning. I, I was so in, in such utter despair at what was going on that I called my daughter, who, who lives in Toronto but not with us, and um, I, I was just sobbing. I was just sobbing because there was so much rage and frustration and despair that, that this is what the world decided was okay. Um, that was probably the low point. And then I sort of dug myself out after that and, and began, um, before I got to the book, I began writing a lot of um, essays, op-eds like yourself, um, about the the whole philosophical aspects of this pandemic management. Um, and they got published in various outlets, some of them mainstream, some of them more niche. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I can talk more uh, if you want about how how the book came about. But that's the well, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, and I think, um, but I want to I want to explore just a little bit about the the the, the psychology of fear that you're describing, right? Uh, I mean, even even loved ones. I when I at the beginning of the pandemic, I would get uh, emails from people who worked uh, who were like the, the wives or husbands of people who worked in hospitals, and they would write to me asking me, "Was is it okay to hug my husband?" When he comes home from the ER shift, mm. I mean, um, the amount of fear there really distorts how we act and think. It makes it very difficult to behave rationally. Uh, where ra I mean, by ra I don't mean I don't mean in some like homo economica sense. I mean just to think, to like, uh, and to, to say, okay, what is the evidence actually saying? We we re we have like in part of our makeup this sort of built-in. Uh, dread of infectious disease and mm. all of the messaging essentially triggered that made it so that 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 people were going to then look on each other as if we were the other as if we were uh threats to each other like deep threats like i just i just come in within contact of you for a minute and all of a sudden i'm also diseased i'm also threatened absolutely it's a real you know, and, and again people have always asked me i never felt fear i was never afraid of this virus um, which doesn't mean I didn't believe in it or thought it was a hoax or anything like that. Um, but never, you know, I, I saw the early data from the uh, Diamond Princess um, cruise ship. And I even I remember, you know, just out of curiosity, I entered my data into this Oxford COVID risk calculator that they had at the time. And although I'm in an older age group, you know, I don't have other risk factors. So my 
risk of death from contacting the disease came back at one in 6,500. So I thought, you know, I can live with that. I can live with that. I'm just not going to worry about it. Um, And that was the end of that. And um, so, you know, people say, oh, you know, you were really worried about it, but you couldn't face the trauma and all that. No, no, it's not true. I know when I'm traumatized. I wasn't worried about it. Um, Yeah. I was aware of the risk. Yeah. I had one moment of fear, uh, and that was, so I ran a, a seroprevalence study to measure the, the, the spread of the disease in April of 2020. Was that, uh, in, was that the it, Santa Clara? The Santa Clara study? Yeah, Santa Clara, yeah. Santa Clara study, yeah, with John E. and Aaron Ben-David. And then I ran another study in, in, in L.A. County the, the week after, early April 2020. And, uh, I mean, I, I had a very strong suspicion the disease was pretty widespread, so that means the disease, the death rate must have been low. I had a mm-hmm. hypothesis that was low. Right. We ran a study to check hypothesis, but my my daughter and my wife volunteered to do a collection for the study. Like essentially, like they they would like uh, you know take you know like someone would collect the blood, and then someone had to take the blood little blood sample and run it to the lab the, the 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 lab table. And you know, my daughter volunteered to do that. My my mm-hmm. wife volunteered to help with the study. And the night before this, the data collection, I just, I mean, I was like, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? I, it's one thing to put me in, in yeah. this situation, yeah. but what is it about putting my family in? Yeah. Um, but I, it was, it was an irra- I knew it was irrational. I knew it was irrational at the time because like, okay, I, I don't know that the death rate's high. Everything I'd seen up to that, the Diamond Princess data, the uh, data out of China indicated to me the disease must, had been much more widespread than people knew. And, no, and I think I guess, it's, it's normal to have you know, we want to protect our families, of course, you know, I would feel the same way. Um, and, and I did feel the same way, you know, and I never advocated that people go and, you know, breathe and cough on each other or anything like that. There's a certain amount of common sense and restraint that I think most decent people will just naturally um, exercise. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think, uh, I mean, that was, but but I do think that, that that fear played an enormous role in shaping how people thought. Now, and you start the start your book with a uh, a profile of Laura Dodsworth, who wrote a fantastic book called State of Fear, mm-hmm. uh, and then and later Matthias Desmet, who wrote a book about um, what something called mass formation. Yeah. Like the, so uh, I mean, for you, it's very clear that that your, your thinking is is very much is is uh, is focused on this like. The, the psychology of this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've looked at one, and I'd love your your thinking on this because this is something that, that occurred to me while I was reading the book. Is like, what is the difference be- between people who very early on said, "Okay, I, I I I don't think that the the standard way that we're being talked about, we're told to talk about this disease, which is this you know airborne Ebola, we're all going to die, we stay away from each other for for the rest of time," um, versus uh, you know, let's look at the data. Let's try to do some analysis. Let's try to figure out who's most vulnerable. Um, th- those two pictures of the disease are very, very different. And I've, I've wondered what led some people down one path and versus another. Like, what have you have you thought about that? Like, what what led you? Because as you said, you were um, part of a community of people, most of whom disagreed with you at first. Yeah. I imagine. Uh, yeah, I've thought about all this very deeply. Um, you know, there's several things if we want to get uh, philosophical. Um, I, I don't think that I have a strong personal fear of death. Uh, it's not that I want to go out and jump off a cliff or anything. But um, I've always been more interested in how I live my life than, than how long my life is. And, um, you know, th- this obsession with extending our lives again, at all costs, you know, I mean, I work in the, I work in pharma, I work in the healthcare system, I know what's going on, you know, people who are um, championing these, these million dollar drugs that might buy you a few extra months of life when you have advanced cancer. I mean, this is sort of the direction that our society is going. And that's always seemed a little misguided to me. Um, You know, I don't know what we're trying to accomplish with this. I think we're missing opportunities to to live deeper and in more meaningful way. I I just don't really agree with the paradigm of devoting the, the winter of your life, so to speak, to just running from hospital to hospital with tubes hanging out all your orifices. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of background to that too, why I feel that way. Uh, I had a parent who was uh, terrified of death beyond, 
you know, the normal baseline human fear. And that caused a lot of problems. So I think that's the part of me just decided mm. to go in a different direction. Um, you know, we saw that so much during COVID. Again, this stay home, save lives. If you save one life, it's not that I don't want to save lives. It's not that I want people to die. None of that. But um, I'm just not plugged into that way of thinking. And that's, you know, I call that the biomedical model. And I talk about that in the book, just the biomedical model of life that prioritizes what I call preserving metabolic life and what philosopher. Exactly. I was just just about to talk about him. Uh, You know, Giorgio Agamben is one of the people that I feature in the book of the Italian philosopher. And he emerged fairly early in the pandemic with an alternative perspective. And again, he calls it bare life. And I think he had, you know, I I really, what what he said really resonated with me because it was the same kind of thing. It was this weird over-focus on bare life, metabolic life at the expense of what makes life meaningful. So I remember calling it at the saying at the time, we're we're canceling living to save lives, which seemed kind of absurd to me. I mean, I can see, okay, for two weeks, maybe a couple of months, but when it started to just be interminable and there was no exit ramp, and this was the what people were prepared to do for the foreseeable future, it started to seem more and more absurd to me. I mean, I think that that's such an important point, right? We what what is the purpose of our life? Is it merely to just survive until the until it's as absolutely long as possible, or or, or is some other purpose, right? If uh, so, I come. I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm a, you know I don't I. I became a Christian uh, in, as an adult. Um, for me, the fundamental purpose of life cannot be simply to, to live as long as possible. It must be self-sacrificial love for, for others. Like that's, that is what we're, I think we're called to. And I think that that's, and, and you don't have to be a Christian to believe this. I think um, you can see it in your own life. If you, if you live your life for others, if you're willing to, to take the gifts that you have and give, give for others, you, you will, you'll end up in a in a better place, you'll be it'll be you'll live a much more meaningful life. You'll psychologically, it's the right kind of kind of kind of thing. And it, it shocked me to see so many Christians actually, and so many people who I thought as wise, uh, you know, non Christians that would change essentially look and say, well, you know, uh, all that matters is we just have to get through this to the other side of this so we can live long. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, it didn't make it didn't it it's it struck me as like they had, they had forgotten and so we ended up doing a, atrocious things you know in montreal i saw uh some some numbers or saw a story that early in the pandemic the the uh the staff that were assigned to care for older people in nursing homes abandoned abandoned their, their posts because they were so afraid of getting COVID from the people they were supposed to take care of and so older patients yeah. with dementia died of dehydration because they couldn't there was, there was some horrible stuff you know I, I talk about some of the stuff we did to children in the book which enrages me in particular because I'm very much a children first kind of person and you know there was a story about a um, a mother who took her son to the hospital and he had meningitis as it turned out but he had been exposed to covid and so he was turned away in the ER and he ended up dying a 19 year old boy of meningitis, you know, that, that is just such a tragedy. And that's the kind of stuff that breaks my heart. That really breaks my heart. Um, and it's interesting that you talked about religion because I touch on religion as well in the book, just to backtrack a little, what I, I wanted to just talk about, you know, the, a little bit about how the book is structured. Um, as we talked about earlier in this interview, I thought it was really important to go beyond the scientific perspective because what historians and writers and musicians and um, economists and lawyers have to say about a pandemic is just as important as what scientists do, because this is a human multifaceted problem. This is why I interviewed and featured a bunch of scientists, but people also from all kinds of disciplines, including a comedian and a priest. And although I'm not religious myself, you know, I'm kind of an I don't know person. I did really come to understand the religious perspective. I come from a mostly Jewish background. And when the um, Hasidic Jews in both Israel and New York started to rebel against this and said, we will not comply, 
um, I experienced for the first time ever a curious affinity with this group. Um, I have some Orthodox cousins in Israel, but I have no contact with them, uh, you know, and um, I've, I was never part of that world. But I really understood, you know, I, I followed some of the interviews with them. And they, for instance, there was one rabbi who said, you know, the secular world just doesn't understand. We believe that studying Torah protects our young from harm. And so we want them to con- continue doing that in a community setting because we believe that is protective. And somehow I really got it in a way that I hadn't before, even though I don't, you know, I haven't done that with my kids. Um, but I really came to understand the truly religious perspective that is not as obsessed, you know, with, with just the here and now, preserving the metabolic life right now, but thinking more of the health of the community and the, the spiritual and psychological health. So I, you know, I do feature yeah. a, a priest in the book, uh, a Canadian um, who has, who's also a writer and he was in one of our major papers talking about these issues all along. I mean, I really, that's something I really enjoyed about the way you, you wrote the book. You, you, you structured it around people, people who had particular perspectives that, that, that was, were different from the, you know, airborne Ebola perspective. Mm-hmm. Right, you, you, and and they each come at it from their own different angles. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm in the book uh, briefly. Yeah, of course, um, we won't talk about me, but but I but I will say like for, for it was it was very interesting to see how you draw themes about the advocacy for each each of these these folks. Like Agamben is such an interesting character, for instance. Um, you know, a philosopher, a philosopher of the left. You wrote a book called State of Exception, saying yeah. you know, essentially critiquing. I think it was the Iraq War originally, um, or or the or, or just the war on terror generally, um, but applying applying it to this setting where we have essentially this emergency, an emergency focused on bare, bare as you say, bare metabolic life, um, preserve, preserving that as if it were the the the, the key thing. I, I and I agree with you that like the Hasidic Jews were were, a, were super interesting and actually ep- epidemiologically they didn't do so poorly. Right uh, then. Compared to the even even by the standards of bare metabolic life, they did pretty well. Right. Same uh, with the Amish. Preserved, same with the Amish. Same, right. Same kind of thing. So, and yet they preserve their 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 humanity in the process. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I thought I found I found that I mean that your book is is so interesting. I hope everybody gets to read the book. Uh, but it no, was it was you. it was like a it was a it was it was interesting to see um, people throw away those 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 core values that drive who they are. It, 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 in, in, in the idea of infection control. Um, it, was, it was such a uh, shock, like to discover at my advanced age. Um, I thought that everyone would agree with me because I thought I was fairly mainstream in the way I viewed life. So it was really a shock to discover that I'm actually not mainstream, you know, and to have to find <laughs> at this age, as I say, because I hadn't participated in any, uh, you know, rallies or protests or anything like that. I just sort of, you know, done my work, enjoyed my life and, and, uh, you know, done a bunch of interesting things, but I hadn't really been an activist. And and this was interesting because I, I did attend a few protests, a few, um, anti COVID measure protests in Toronto. And it was an interesting experience because I was looking around, uh Oh, you know, are any of my clients here or any of my friends here? You know, there was, there was a certain discomfort, but I think I also have reached an age and a stage in my career where I, I thought, you know what? I'm I'm ready for this. If people cancel me or whatever, if I lose a client or two or three, I can deal with it. You know, so I was in a fortunate position because, you know, if I had to support young children or whatever, I might have made different choices. So I don't want to position myself as, as superior for, you know, having the courage to to come out, so to speak, because I was in a privileged position. But it was still a very interesting um, experience uh, to do that. And um same with the with the truckers protest. I I didn't participate myself, but my son did. He he lives in Montreal, and he and a bunch of friends went to the uh, protest in Ottawa. And I do devote one chapter of the book to that. And so I had the advantage of having firsthand information from him. I actually interviewed him uh, for the book, and he told me what it was actually like on the ground. Uh, because again, people vilified me for supporting the protest on paper. I wrote an op-ed for um, the Ottawa Citizen about why, um, I think it was called something like about, I should hate the truckers. Here's why I don't. And, you know, people told me, how can you as a child of a Holocaust survivor support this, 
you know, Nazi group and blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, and again, it was really nice to have my son who was there and who certainly isn't a Nazi supporter and to tell me really what it was like. And, um, I, mean, and another, I, was, I was watching, I was watching pictures. I was watching pictures from, I mean, I was like, there's bouncy castles. There's like Sikh, Sikh truckers. Uh, I mean, the, the idea that they're Nazis is, is a, is a, is a slander. Like it really is a terrible lie. Uh, what they were doing was they were, they were expressing their horror at what had happened in Canada. Um, in fact, watch, I mean, I, I live in California. It was pretty bad here. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the demonization, this was, this, the focus of course, of the truckers protest was around the, the, uh, the vaccine mandates and the difficulty that the truckers were having doing their, mm -hmm. their, their basic work. And also their, their, principled objection to being forced to take a take something they didn't necessarily want um but you know what like i that was the ostensible um purpose uh, but one of the people that i feature in that chapter rupa subramania she's a um well-known yeah yeah she's she's been you know doing the rounds she's um she said in an interview and i really agreed with that that um it's larger than that you know, there was a bigger moment, you know, on the surface, it was about the vaccine mandates, but it was really about how Canadian society went nuts and how the government treated Canadians and what Trudeau was doing. And, and I really agreed with that. And, yeah, I mean, I, th I thought that was I thought that was it. that chapter was great, because I do know Rupa. And, I've, and I, of course, she also is such an interesting person, like she changed her mind during the pandemic. Um, I was on her show, the, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, th I think um, that the, it struck, struck me in about Canada, from as an outsider and even more than in California which was pretty bad was this this sort of like uh demonization of people who disagreed with the the mainstream narrative right so you're it was almost like you were an unclean other it's like a caste system almost uh where where like you know you you were you were either either clean or someone who agreed with Trudeau and therefore the mainstream narrative and clean, then you you're vaccinated and you wore a mask and you did, you did everything you're supposed to do or, or you disagreed with any way and you're unclean. I think a lot of the root of the truckers protest was that the sense of like, they look, they're unclean because they have to, they're, they're doing the work that everyone needs to have done there. And they're, they're, they're going to be treated as if they're like second class citizens. Yeah. That's really the psychological root of it. I, I, and when I, as soon as I saw the trucker protest, I felt this affinity to them. And I, yeah, and I so did I. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was there cheering know. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting that it happened in Canada because Canada, you know, has this reputation, I think, deserved for being uh, sort of um, fairly uh, conforming kind of people who don't want to cause trouble. I mean, look at our, national motto you know what is it order and good government something like that very boring so so it was interesting that this came from canada but maybe that's why because can it sort of erupted i mean there was there's only so much that you can keep up that facade of well we're not american we're not like them we're we're good we follow the rules we obey and and then this this erupted here you know and inspired other similar protests throughout the world yeah, I mean, and I actually, I, I, sir, I was a expert witness in a couple of Canadian uh, lawsuits against the lockdown, one in Manitoba and one in Alberta. Um, and uh, the, 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 I think in both cases there were religious folks. Yes. Um, in Alberta, thrown in jail for thirty days. Like mm -hmm. This guy, uh, 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 and, uh, and, and you know, it just struck me as Canada basically decided that its charter didn't wasn't wasn't real. Like yes. you don't actually have the basic human rights that you think you have. And in fact, that's exactly what both courts said, that mm -hmm. that the charter didn't apply during a, a, an emergency. Yeah. That, that the Canadian government can violate your, your basic civil rights, the right to worship, the right to speak, the right to, 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 to protest. And if you and they can do things that would if you saw it happen in other countries, in poor countries doing this, you'd say, well, this is an authoritarian government. You know, t seizing the bank accounts of someone organizing a protest, and especially doing it retroactively—that was so absurd. Um, you know, they, once they decided that this was an illegal protest, then they go and retroactively seize the accounts when the people were protesting. There had not been a declaration of illegality, so that was completely absurd. Um, but absolutely, what you say about the—you know—taking away the rights. 
several people, you know, people, including people that I feature in the book, like Mark Changizi and um, uh, Matthew Crawford, the writer, another very interesting guy, have, have made the excellent point that the whole point of rights, human rights, are for the hard times. Nobody needs the human rights in easy, plentiful times. We need them when the rubber hits the road, when things get difficult. That's when we need them. And, you know, and, and that's why it was so shocking to see, um, as our side often says, just people so willing to give up their freedoms. Um, you know, that's when you need the freedoms. It's just like free speech. You don't need free speech if you're going to say, oh, I believe in world peace. You don't need free speech protections for that. You need free speech protections when you're going to say controversial things that are going to piss off a lot of people. So that's the whole point yeah. of these protections is they're for, they're for the hard times. And yes, you have a clash of different priorities and you have to manage that and talk about that, but not just throw out the freedoms, the, the hard won freedoms. So I, I wanted to talk about uh, the, some of the the, uh, the partisanship issues that you brought up earlier, right? So in in the United States, um, as time went on, uh, the, uh, I think very initially people it didn't matter if you were left or right. People, all, basically everyone, everyone, but but a few crazy people like me and you, I guess, <laughs> right. uh, d- disagreed with the with the lockdowns. Um, but uh, as time went on, it became deeply partisan. You know, you could uh, I, I, I you could tell who was a Republican and a Democrat based on are they wearing a mask? Exactly. The ma- as they say, the mask was the Democrats' MAGA hat, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, which is which is a crazy thing, right? So, like in in uh, in medical school, uh, you go do surgical uh, two months of surgery. That's part of medical school as a, as a clerkship, and you're trained to wear a mask, right? You 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 have to. You have to put it on a certain way. It has to be, you know, like there's, it has to be fitted to you. Um, you're, uh, you, you, you'd use it in particular settings. You don't use it in other settings, right? If you are in a, in a, in a, in a surgical suite, you, you use it because you don't want to, you don't want bacteria and spittle getting into the surgical field. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, you, you, in, in other settings, you don't use it. You're talking to a patient um, who, in a, in, you know, like a, like in a psychiatry rotation, you're not wearing a mask. Hmm. Because that de- that dehumanizes yes. the person that you're yeah. talking to, right? Uh, you, so it's one of these things where, like, uh, now all of a sudden, you take something that that has some medical uses potentially, and turn it into something where everyone's required to do it on the basis of very very poor evidence, mind you. But we'll, we'll leave the science aside, hmm. um, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, the psychology takes over, and. Some people start seeing it as a symbol of being clean, right? In fact, uh, not just clean, but empathic, right? So, like, exactly, and, and it's, the, I'm a I'm a caring work person because I, you know, the, the classic virtue signaling. That, that's definitely what it became. And um, of course, the public health authorities reinforced that. They said, yeah. "If my mask protects you, your mask protects me." That was very clever messaging. Very, very clever. It Essentially, was, says it was. And and I've written about, I've written about that whole mask issue. And I always felt, you know, and and there's still Twitter wars going on about the whole mask thing. I always felt that it really was never about the data. Yes, of course, there's a lot of data. There was a Cochrane review and and all this, you know, large scale data showing that uh, it really doesn't make a big enough difference to justify all this craziness. But I, I always felt and continue to believe that behind all the data wars, you know, yes, they work. No, they don't. Here's this study. Here's that study. That there's really a difference in worldview, which is my whole thesis about the pandemic to begin with. Uh, again, there's the worldview that the biomedical worldview, the most important thing that we can do in life is just to, um, to guarantee physical safety. Whatever can improve the odds of physical safety, even if it's by, you know, a fraction of a percent, that should take priority over everything else. And then the other worldview is that humans are here for many different reasons. And preserving safety, while important, is not the only one and should not automatically supersede all the other considerations. And a perma-masked world does not seem, it seems like an anti-human world. It does not seem like a world that's conducive to, to rich, meaningful interactions. And so that, that's what I really think the argument is about. You know, it's like in that Woody Allen movie, the, um, 
Annie Hall, I think it was, you know, where they're, they're talking, Alvin and um, Annie, but then there's the thought bubbles, you know, what they're really thinking. So I always get that impression. They're talking about the data, this, 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 but they're really talking about the kind of world they want to live in. That's yeah. that's what I feel is happening. There's always, there's always subtext. There's always, always subtext, right? Always, always. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so, but, you know, I'm curious about the partisanship angle of it, right? So, like, it's it's not it's not obvious or natural to think that the left uh, would automatically adopt the more authoritarian thing. It's not obvious or natural that the left would, would take this sort of, like, mask as the symbol. Like, I mean, just to give you a counterpoint to this, uh, it's the Swedish left that supported Anders Tegnell in not requiring mask mandates, yeah. defended it against that, against the, you know, attacks from the Swedish right wanted more uh draconian measures um it was this you know it's 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 not clear and obvious that would all and in fact in the uk it's the it's the right it's it's boris johnson that imposes these uh these measures right um so what what is it about the partisanship it's just such an odd thing that in the in the uh in the in the united states and canada that where the left adopted these measures as, as talismans of themselves, whereas the right pushed back. Is, is there a logic to it, or is it just it's just an accident of history? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I call it an accident of history. Um, you know, not that I'm a that well-versed in world history, but it seems that the, the modern left um, seems to be more about big government, and the modern right is more about less government. So I think the right pushed back against the idea of, you know, this this massive degree of government interference, which we were saying, and the left was comfortable with that. So it's more of the, I don't know, a socialist kind of left? I'm not sure. But I, you know, it did, it seemed to happen in, in a few countries that the left was more on board with this, not just here. So I think it's just a function of the um, the direction that the left has have, has taken you know, classically, the left used to be more about the little guy, the worker, and all that. And and now it's more about, um, you know, just big government organizing society in a uniform way. And I think the right, um, rightly, uh, has a problem with that, you know. And so I, I've sort of joined the large and apparently increasing group of politically homeless people who really don't identify <laughs> with either left or right. Um, but I, mean, I, I talked about a couple, you know, there's also that meme, which you've, you may have seen if you spend any time on Twitter slash X, where, you know, the person is standing in place. They have not changed their political views. And here they are in 2008, and they're somewhat left of center. But then the, the spectrum shifts in 2012, and then it shifts again in 2018, and then again in 2022. So they haven't moved, but what used to be a left of center stance have, has now they're they're far right just because the the meaning of those terms has changed and what they stand for has changed and i think a lot of us have found ourselves in that position and two people that i feature in the book who are exactly on that position are the writers matt taibbi and um uh glenn greenwald same thing They, they come from a very very left solid left uh, background they're, they're and, and, what they are is liberals they're old-fashioned liberals they're old-fashioned they liberals exactly yeah exactly. and and you know I, I remember elon musk tweeted that uh that 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 meme where you know like the the, the guy is like running running yeah. left and all of a sudden the, the the person who was there at center left just feels abandoned um or you know actually welcome to the right um I, I but i you know i have to say from a from a public i mean i am a professor and i work in public health right I always thought, and I, in fact, I've never signed up for a political party because I always thought I needed to be able to speak to everybody. Mm. Uh, and I, I do data analyses for a living. That's what I that's what I did before I published published data analyses. And sometimes the data analysis comes out and the right likes it, and sometimes the data analysis comes out and the left likes it. I don't have any control over that. I just have control over trying to do as honest a data analysis as I can. And this was, mm. which is this is why I never signed up for the, for either party. Uh, I mean, I, I may have inclinations, but it just it struck me as much, much less important than the contribution I can make by doing data. Now, all, now all of a sudden, I find myself in this setting where people uh, t- assume things about my political opinions 
uh, that that just I mean they don't correspond to like who I think of myself as. And frankly, I I'll, I'm I'm willing to throw away my political opinions if I if a data point comes out and says, look, this I mean it's just I just this is just not part of who I am. I so, mm-hmm. and I don't understand. I never really understood uh, making the the politics sort of the central point of someone's identity or my identity because mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like my identity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an ally with the left and an ally with the right, depending on on the the topic. Um, yeah, it's, it's like so we're expected to, to accept this whole menu. If you're on the left, here's the menu. Here are the things you're supposed to be in favor for, and here are the things you're supposed to be against. And if yeah. you're on the right, there's this different menu. And I think for whatever reason, it's gotten more and more polarized. So I've got a lot of cousins in the states, and one of them tells me the left and the right. She's a Democrat, and but she said she used to have a lot of Republican friends. And now she doesn't have any because the sides can't talk to each other anymore. So yeah, it's just it's heartbreaking. I mean, like I, I mean, people are people are so interesting. Like they're you know, even people with like very strong political opinions are so interesting. I want to get to talk to all of them. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's you know, that's been part of my experience and, and a bit of a regret so far with this book. Um, the book's been out for most of this year, and um, I wrote the book to appeal to both sides. Um, I wrote it just to say, okay, here's why some of us oppose these policies. Here's just sort of a a sampling of the of the reasons of the deep philosophical, psychological, human reasons why some of us were against us. Agree or disagree? Here they are. Let's talk. That was the purpose. And of course, I really wanted to appeal especially to the left because the left was much more on board with these policies. But what I found, I think, like so many other people who've written um, about this from a critical perspective, is that I've had so much more interest from the right, so-called right, of right of center media than from the left. I mean, I've been thrilled with some of the attention that I've got. It's been great. But when I've tried to reach out to um, left of center media in Canada and in the States, almost no attention at all. And so you know, that's something that I hope to change, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, that was a goal of mine, but it's been really challenging so far to reach that side because, um, well, the publisher of the book, the Brownstone Institute, some people have a sort of automatic association with that Institute, uh, not knowing about all the wonderful, diverse, incredibly educated people who are part of it. And they just, you know, some left-wing, media organizations oh no brownstone we won't touch it so it's yeah i mean I, I, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch that happen with when the left like some of these and, and and part of it is just there's this sort of uh demonization that takes place this knee-jerk demonization brownstone is not uh on the right i mean you talk to people that are in it and there are people that are just deeply committed to the left their entire life Absolutely. Uh, as part of it like what it is is a is a collection of people who oppose the lockdowns for a variety of reasons, a whole range of interesting reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, they, there's, psych- there's psychological themes, there's polit- obviously political themes, but also scientific themes. Scientific there's theme. all- oh, yeah. There's, and, and there's a great diversity and there's a lot of disagreement too. The yeah. members don't dis- don't agree at all on many issues and that's fine. That's great. Uh, but there's, you know, so many bright, independent thinkers and uh, and it is a shame, again, uh, so that's that's one well, of the challenges. I'm sure like you, yeah. This is like your Reddit, uh, your the Reddit thing, like which you, where you all the lockdown skeptics. I I found and you you were all so kind to invite me twice to to do the AMA. But like it, what I found was that it was a very very wide range of views even within the lockdown skepticism uh, community in Reddit. Um, and you know I just I just find that refreshing. It's like you're not you're not there's not this monolithic. Uh, uh, you must believe this or else you're out kind of thing. It's just, you know, here's the set of things that people people approach this and they're going to disagree about some things and agree on other things. Yeah, um, no, it was a good group. And we actually survived the great Reddit purge of 2021 where they they purged a lot of the groups that were a little more um, extreme perhaps. But, you know, we moderators, we, we, re- we had high standards and uh, we didn't allow just trash posts um, all claims had to be backed by evidence and so forth. So it it gave rise to some really good discussions. And I think in the worst times during the pandemic, it was an absolute lifeline for many of us, complete lifeline. You know, I think part of the, um, I, I don't know for certain with the, with Reddit, but I believe it's true, is that with, I'm, so I'm part of this lawsuit called the Missouri versus Biden case. Yes, I'm following. I'm so excited for, for you. I, 
Um, it's, but I think it's very likely that a lot of the, the moderation decisions that the social media companies made, including pop, probably Reddit, uh, were at the pressure of governments. Governments telling uh, the social media companies that they needed to police misinformation or else. But often the government was ended up policing true information that was just inconvenient for government policy. Um, you know, the, the, the government wanted to protect crit- itself from criticism of its own policy. And so it used this co- cover of, oh, we have to root the world of misinformation. Uh, and, uh, and, and that may be partly why that great Reddit purge happened. Government oh, absolutely. Well, I completely believe that it, it, you know, it seems like there's enough evidence now on, on, uh, in the lawsuit to, to, that yes, this did happen. And again, then we get to the whole misuse of these words like misinformation and denier and eugenicist and all that. It's, it's, it's so frustrating as I'm sure it is for you too, to, um, to hear all this stuff, you know, misinformation, um, the information is changing and also how I guess I'm pretty close to a free speech absolutist. The the only way that you find out what is true is you have to have a free marketplace of ideas and then the best ideas rise to the top and you can discuss them. Um, if you suppress mis- so-called misinformation or contrarian information or dissident information, it's going to surface somewhere else. It, it doesn't, you know, you have to let the information breathe and um, and discuss it fairly and openly. Um, I mean, that, that's a theme that comes across really well in your book, Gabriella. Is this, you know, this is the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Uh, the illusion is created by not letting so many people with other voices into the conversation. Uh, and who is who gets to decide what's true or false? Is We don't have a high pope of science or a high pope of society. We don't have a king that sits over us, right? Well, um, and also, some, some of the things that were branded as misinformation or information were actually policy opinions and this is a, a huge pet peeve of mine um, to to call something information when it's actually opinion um, because there may be some scientific facts but what you do with those facts that's a policy decision that's not science that's a policy decision which necessarily brings in subjective values so you can't call lockdowns a scientific decision no matter what the science of pandemic spread or virology says that is necessarily a decision that has a subjective component um, because it involves weighing different values and depending on how you weight them, you're going to arrive at a different solution. Um, so that, that kind of drove me nuts too. And so a lot of what is considered misinformation is not really in the realm of factual information. It's in the realm yeah, of even, even, even something like uh even like, uh, do we declare this a pandemic, right? Exactly. So the declaration of the start and end of a pandemic is a political decision. Exactly. It's, 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 there's inputs of science into it. Okay, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's such a basic point And it drove me nuts that so few people seem to understand it. That whole meme, follow the science. And I've written about this too, in various outlets, you know, arguing that there's actually no such thing as following the science. Science cannot be followed because science is, um, I liken it to a weather vane. You know, science tells you, oh, you know, there's a stiff wind coming in from the Northwest. That's information. But what you do with that information, one person might say, oh, God, I'm going to stay inside. That sounds really, I don't want to face that. And another person might say, oh, there's a stiff wind. I want to go out for a bracing walk. So that's where the political, personal opinion comes into it. it it's the old um, um no ought from is principle that david hume a philosopher advanced you know there, there's is information that science gives us and then there's the ought which is moral political psychological decisions and this this confusion of the two follow the science no we cannot follow the science we can use the science to make decisions yeah. and use other inputs too and then there's there's this conflation with these like this sort of uh, Aristotle's version of the of the uh, of the precautionary principle. Oh my god! Where they, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's no. basically like yeah, yeah. Sorry, go. Ahead. Oh, one of one of the people that I interviewed for the book, um, um, Zeb uh, Jamrzik, a um, an Australian philosopher. He he talked about the abuse of the precautionary principle, which is I think what happened. Uh, in this pandemic, the precautionary principle was was 
brought to bear and then abused. I mean, the precautionary principle is intended to be used um, for a limited amount of time when the uncertainty is really great. And once the uncertainty about a situation diminishes, then we should cast it aside and replace it with proportionality principle. But to keep invoking and using this um, precautionary principle, it's like living in worst case scenario mode. Imagine if we lived our whole lives. Okay, well, this could happen, that, that could happen. That is basically what the precautionary principle is. It's saying this is a worst case um, scenario and we are going to make decisions based on that. Well, it's not a way to live life. It's, it's a temporary stopgap measure for the short window of time in which we really know nothing. Then, okay, we assume the worst is going to happen. But as a way of life, it doesn't work because you can't do anything. Yeah. I mean, I wrote an essay about this. Uh, I mean, I, I think the right way to cast it is, okay, you have an uncertain outcome. You know, how deadly is this virus? Who's it going to in- inflict, right? Um, you're allowed in, in the context of making decisions very early on to, to assume the worst about it. That's, yes. that's basically what precautionary principle buys you. But it doesn't allow you then to make assumptions about how effective the countermeasures you're going to be using are. That For that, you need evidence, mm-hmm. right? Do I, just, if I, do I hit myself on the head and maybe the virus will go right. away? Right. Um, yeah. No, you're not allowed to do that, right? Yeah. You're also not allowed to ignore the harms that you know will come from the countermeasures. The professional principle doesn't buy you that either. Absolutely. Um, and so it was. And that's why I call it an Erstat's version of the precautionary principle, which mm-hmm. says, "Oh, this is a bad virus, therefore anything is allowed." I mean, in fact, that's um, so true. Yeah, we got to do something, so let's do this, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, yeah, wear, wear bells on our head, kind of thing. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, Gabrielle, we're up on an hour, and uh, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Um, I, you know, f- f- folks who are listening, I, I very, very strongly recommend uh, Gabrielle's book, "Blind Side Is Twenty Twenty." Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for this conversation. Really appreciate uh, having the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, it's an honor and pleasure to talk to you. All right. Take care, everybody.